Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, Season 3, Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. The Wirecard Saga is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you, Tom. Welcome back, listeners. Episode 38, The Man Behind the Curtain. What an opening day to day 11 of the trial. Dear Lamonstetter, defense counsel respectively, to Braun and Von Erfer, just go for the jugular. They label Bellenhaus, quote, a professional liar. Stetter goes even deeper and stirs up potential marital discord for Bellenhaus by saying the defendant Bellenhaus even deceived his own wife about his identity. And here was Ollie blaming the warden for the stoppage on his conjugal visit. The defense lawyers accused him of, of so many layers of deceit, it was almost comical. Admittedly, the lack of support for anything Bellenhaus has alleged and the very convenient manner in which he obliterated his emails, texts, records, and even his mobile phone as he was being led away in cuffs back in 2020, they are a bit of a hurdle to overcome. Bellenhaus's statements impugned, Durlam and Statter have filed a motion with the court to have his entire testimony set aside so that it cannot be used by the judges when adjudicating the verdict. And that brings us to the question of Wirecard TPAs. Did they be or did they not be? Now, in the last episode, I promised we'd do a little piercing of the corporate veil. Well, let's look at another Wirecard-related court case. Listeners, as you know, I've been endeavoring these last few episodes to take us through the various cases in courts around the world that have a nexus to Wirecard. And today, we pull back the curtain, or pierce the corporate veil. You see, a couple of months ago, November 2022, a precedent-setting decision was made in the Irish highest court, and Wirecard featured. Now, this decision could open a path for getting behind any number of entities to discover the real beneficial owners, because essentially, the court's decision means where a fraud perpetrated can be found to have a nexus through Ireland there is now a basis to unmask those that ultimately benefited from that fraud, no matter where they are. I'd even argue that if the fraudulent proceeds touched an account at, say, Wirecard Bank registered in Ireland or ran through Wirecard UK in Ireland, Wookie, even if only for a split second before zinging off to land in some other bank account or offshore entity, there's a niche by which to place a legal foothold. Now, some of you may be wondering what the heck I'm on about. So first, for the lay listeners who don't spend all of their time reading civil and criminal complaints or building cases for prosecution, what do I mean when I say the corporate veil? Now, the corporate veil is just a euphemism for a principle enshrined in common law that creates a boundary between a corporate entity and the entity's shareholders. Typically, shareholders are protected from liability for the corporation's actions because they are said to exist behind said corporate veil. What is known as piercing the corporate veil refers to treating the rights or liabilities or activities of a company as the rights or liabilities or activities of its shareholders. And this is not taken lightly by courts. The most common exception, and it is not always easy to prove, is the fraud exception, That is, that the company only exists to camouflage the fraudulent actions of its shareholders, and thus limited liability should be set aside and the directors and shareholders held personally liable for both the corporation's bad acts and its debts. Now, understand, in most jurisdictions, and certainly in common law jurisdictions, the general rule is that the creditors have no recourse against corporate shareholders as long as formalities are satisfied. And this is not a new concept. The idea of a corporation as a legal fiction distinct from the individuals who compose it has formed back to the days of the Romans, and possibly even earlier. However, for centuries, with respect to limited liability, the members of the regulated companies 
did not possess it, and the members of joint stock corporations did not derive the privilege from incorporation in and of itself. And between the Roman Empire and the mid-19th century, really, many jurisdictions only allowed the formation of companies through royal consent, or as in the early history of the U.S., via approval of a state legislature. Literally, a state assembly had to vote on every company's proposed formation. The freedom to incorporate in Britain as a limited liability company has only been available since 1855. Hitherto, most of the business enterprises were single shingles or small family operations, maybe a partnership or unincorporated. There were cases in the 17th century that didn't entirely let owners of a corporate body off the hook for debts the company owed, and there was even some case law that said members of a company who were creditors of the company ranked below other creditors. If anybody, any legal historians in the audience, that's Dr. Salmon v. the Hamburger Company. But at any rate... In 1856, and you're wondering, when are we getting to Wirecard? But this is leading up to it. In 1856, an Act for the Incorporation and Regulation of Joint Stock Companies and other associations passed, combined with some other legislation. And it launched British companies to incorporate as LLCs. The effect of this liberalization, I mean, when it took place, it was huge. I mean, nearly 5,000 LLCs were established by the end of that year. It's pretty amazing. And then there was a seminal court case in 1897, Solomon v. Solomon, where the high court judge in the case, Lord McNaughton, made it extremely clear that the relationship formed between a company and its shareholders on incorporation was not one of agency. Now, most of you know this, that in today's courts, corporations are treated as having their own legal personality. Companies are juridical persons. Legal personality is a prerequisite to a legal capacity, right? You can enter into a contract, transfer shares, or responsibilities. A firm or organization is permitted to act as a legal person distinct from its owners and managers, and that's important. This enables firms to enter contracts more efficiently. They can sue or be sued in the name of the firm's designated officers. They can own real estate and assets. They can offer assets to creditors, yada, yada, yada. Now, this whole concept, which probably needs a good revisit, is via the affirmative asset partitioning role of having a separate legal personality. The assets of the firm are shielded from their owners and managers, as well as the personal creditors of of those owners and managers, right? Shareholder primacy. And in the U.S., number one jurisdiction for shell companies in the world – The curtain between a company and its shareholders came about from a race to the bottom. Of course it did. Back in the 19th century, U.S. states were competing to lure new businesses to their respective jurisdictions. Lots of revenue to be made from fees and taxes. And in that race to the bottom, corporate regulations such as liability for corporate malfeasance and disclosure of true beneficial ownership, well, those got discarded as well. And then in the 1970s, thanks to Panama, who offered the Limitada Company and inspired some legislation adopted by the U.S., the LLC became the ideal structure by which to hide behind. Which is why today, the U.S., number one offshore center in the world, and states like North Dakota, Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, and others are the go-to place for launderers, kleptocrats, tax evaders of all ilk. So this curtain rod of limited liability holds the corporate veil up. Anonymous incorporation could be considered, what, the sheer drape lining, inner lining? I know I'm really stretching this analogy. But there are certain exceptions to keeping that veil between corporate creditors and the UBOs or shareholders of said company. So, for instance, if the corporation was only created to evade liability, that would be a fraud, then creditors can pierce the corporate veil, peer inside, see who's really behind that. There's much more to it. Different jurisdictions applying certain rules, such as theories of alter ego of directors and so on. I'm not going to get into those, but it is sufficient to understand that this piercing of the corporate veil is not done lightly. And yet, thanks to the Cartoon brothers, Jonathan and David, and maybe baby bro Josh, Their binary option scams and their company, Grey Mountain Management Limited, remember these guys? 
binary option fraud and the nexus to Wirecard UK and Ireland, Wookie. Go back to episodes 11, 26, 24. And recall, Bellenhouse was a named officer of Wirecard Bank Ireland, which operated accounts for both Wookie and directly for Wirecard customers like Grey Mountain. And now it's coming back to you. Okay, well, thanks to this lot, we have not only a fascinating legal case, but more information about specific entities and people tied to Wookie, the Cartoo brothers, and some former Wirecard execs whose familial ties may have helped unravel this particular twisted ball of fraud, because the corporate veil was pierced. Now, let's put our Wirecard friends and family into context here. Recall that under Detmar Nokelman, Michelle Malloy was appointed as director of Wookie, where she was head of sales and operations, and she was also with Wirecard Payment Solutions Holdings Limited. And it was she who also worked for the Car Two Brothers running Grey Mountain Management Limited in Ireland. Now, Michelle seemingly likes to keep busy, so she was also connected to other Car Two Brother entities. Like for instance, she'd move on to Cartoo's mega charge as a director after Grey Mountain got, to, got exposed. And it is Miss Malloy's son, Ryan Coates, who served as the director in name of Grey Mountain, providing a front cover for the Cartoos. All part of one big happy family. In fact, Miss Malloy's husband, Niall Nolan, also worked for Wookie and for Mega Charge. In fact, Niall was head of sales at Wookie. And Miss Malloy's cousin, Danielle Earle, well, she served as administrative manager of Grey Mountain and frequent right hand to the cartoons, cleaning up complaints from defrauded punters. Now, the unraveling started with a class action lawsuit filed in the Irish High Court in 2018. Anna Margareta Griffith and 35 other plaintiffs v. Grey Mountain Management Limited in liquidation and Ryan Coates, Liam Granger, David Cartu and Jonathan Cartu alleging fraud and conspiracy. And the victims hailed from the UAE, Singapore, the US, Canada, South Africa, Britain, Oof, are all crimes now situated post-empire. Okay. All of the plaintiffs had lost money in binary options trading from holding accounts ultimately identified as being controlled by or associated with the Cartoo brothers. However, many of the plaintiffs had interacted with front companies of varying names and website domains and individual agents using false identities. Now, the various iterations of the Cartoos' operations becomes important to a future case as it raises a key question for discovery and attributing liability. In 2020, the Graffith v. Grey Mountain case would ultimately be dismissed for failing as a class action, but not for the underlying alleged fraud. The high court judge in that case wrote in his opinion that the individual plaintiffs could likely each file their own complaint against the defendants. And that is exactly what one of them did. William Thomas Powers, in 2018, filed in the same High Court for Commercial Claims a suit against Grey Mountain, Coates, Granger, and the Cartoos for fraud and alleging that the defendants, all of them, operated a global scam and that Grey Mountain was nothing more than a front for their fraud. Now, Mr. Powers had suffered losses involving binary options tradings by an entity that he knew as Glenridge Capital supposedly headquartered in Dublin. However, Glenridge, well, nothing but a shell. Those answering the phones on behalf of Glenridge were located in call centers in Israel. And communications with and payments to Glenridge? Well, they moved first through Grey Mountain. Now, an essential question of how and if Mr. Powers' case could proceed hinged on whether the broader activities of Grey Mountain and the Cartoos and their other entities, not yet fully identified, could be included in the suit because they personally were involved or related companies they controlled connected to fraud of which Glenrid was only one small part. The decision on this question came before Irish High Court Justice Tony Hunt in 2021, and Justice Hunt ruled that indeed the broader fraudulent activities could be included in Mr. Powers' discovery requests and that they were of probative value to the proceedings. 
In other words, looping in the other entities was relative to the fraud Mr. Powers was alleging was perpetrated by Glenridge. And then here's what happened after that. Glen Mountain, Grey Mountain, Grey Mountain Management Limited had its registered office in Dublin and an administrative office where Danielle worked in the small Irish town of Gorey. As we'll see, the use of this Irish company was a critical factor in the structure and overall success of this international fraud worth $186 million. And as you'll come to realize, the venue is important because like Grey Mountain, Wookie was registered in Ireland and Wirecard Bank held a license to operate from the Irish Central Bank. Now, on one level, this case is about a technical point of company law e.g. whether a company is a separate legal person from the people that control it or should control it. The court was being asked to consider whether directors or shadow directors should be able to evade responsibility for their company's actions by hiding behind the veil of incorporation. And this is a central question because proper corporate regulation has a very real and serious effect on members of the public. Indeed, as the German taxpayers. Until this case, no Irish court had ever held that the veil of incorporation could be pierced or should be pierced in order that directors be held personally liable for the acts or omissions of their company in a case like the one Mr. Powell was bringing. This is because of the well, Mr. Powers, this is because of the well-established principle from Solomon v. Solomon that I mentioned earlier that core legal tenant, the company, is a separate legal person from its directors. However, High High Court Judge uh, Tomei, who was presiding over Mr. Powers' case, identified where judges before him had paved the way for certain exceptions. Now, he quoted a 1984 High Court case, Dublin County Council v. Elton Homes Limited, where the justice in that case had said... If the case were one of fraud, the court might be justified in lifting the veil of incorporation and fixing the directors with personal responsibility. Now, Powers' lawyers had managed to produce to the court what Justice Toomey called uncontroverted evidence that some $186 million in credit card payments from the large number of, quote, air quote, investors in the fraudulent scheme flowed through the accounts of Grey Mountain. Now, not all of that 186 mil were losses suffered by Powers. He'd actually only only lost about 124,000 as a result of his dealings with Grey Mountain and the Cartoos. Now, understand that when alleging fraud in a civil claim, the standard of precision, that is the proof, has to be pled to a higher degree of certainty than a general pleading. Now, in this case, no evidence was produced to the court that binary options were ever even purchased for Powers on his behalf. And unchallenged evidence was provided to the court, unchallenged, that the plaintiff's money was just converted straight out for the use of the Cartoo brothers. Literally, the Cartoos just took deposit from the punters and moved the money around until it landed in their personal bank accounts. Straight up fraud. As the court observed with one eyebrow raised, David Cartoo is a shadow director of Grey Mountain, but currently resides in Dubai and apparently is being held there on some related charges. But David also had addresses both in Israel and in Georgia, the country, not the state. His brother Jonathan is also a shadow director of Grey Mountain, and he's resident in Israel. Now, pay attention to Georgia. We'll get back to that in a moment. A key component of the fraud was the veneer of legitimacy, which was provided by the fact that the recipient of the plaintiff's credit card payments, Grey Mountain, was a company incorporated in Ireland within the EU. Because of that fact, so-called investors, those defrauded, were given the impression that their funds were in the hands of a seemingly legitimate company subject to regulation in Ireland and the EU, and not in the hands of individuals resident in Georgia or Dubai or a company incorporated in Belize, which is ultimately where the various layers of shell codes led once the lids were pried open. More on that in a moment, too. So the fraudulent scheme was structured with an Irish company at its core because the ultimate beneficiaries of the payments received from the 
investors, air quotes, we know them as victims, would not have been able to receive credit card payments themselves. Basically, the cartoons couldn't take direct payment via credit cards from the defrauded, so they needed a layer or two or three or ten in front of them. And that was because the recipient of the credit card payment, Grey Mountain, needed to be based in the EU to have payment processing agreements with a bank, those acquiring banks, remember those? Well, the acquiring bank utilized by Grey Mountain, Wirecard, and Anglo-Irish, don't even get me started on AIB and their past scandals, MaxPay, there's a familiar name, FastCash, an Irish entity, Transact Pro, and Credorix Bank of Malta. Now, these acquiring banks served as the so-called middlemen that received the money from the credit card company of the victim investor, such like using their Visa or MasterCard, and then forwarded the money to Grey Mountain. And Grey Mountain's account with AIB at AIB's Gory Branch was so that Danielle Earle could handle directing transactions out of AB and on to all these other entities. So let's stop for a moment and take a look at the other acquiring banks. WireGuard needs no introduction. Now, Credorix, there's an interesting bedfellow to WireCard. Credorix registered in Malta in March of 2022, so a few months before this ruling, but long after the case had surfaced their name, announced a planned merger with Shift for Payments, LLC, a subsidiary of Shift for Payments, Inc., an American payment processing company, and Shift for BVI Limited, which miraculously themselves are subsidiaries of Shift for LLC and Krieg Mergers Sub Limited, both companies incorporated in the BVI. Now, Credorix has since changed its name to Finaro, but you may recognize the name as the company led by Israeli Egal Rotem. Now, Rotem is known for founding, founding the company PowerSign, and Credorix Bank showed up in the Paradise Papers with a slew of its directors alongside Rotem, implicated in helping to move money for some rather unsavory sorts. Now, funny thing, for being a so-called global bank, Credorix's offices in the UK were in a WeWork space. (laughs) At least someone was renting from that idiot Newman. And its registration office was through an incorporation agent also ID'd in the Paradise Papers alongside 37 other companies, all at the same address. God, it must have gotten really crowded during the workday, hey? Now, Mr. Rotem has said in interview that, quote, Finaro is a new breed of global payment provider that aims to streamline global payments in an extremely user-friendly, brilliantly simple way. And he claims Finaro's success during the pandemic was down to their ability to operate a platform remotely, which led to company growth of more than 50% year-on-year. That's funny, because in another press release, Rotem is said to have led the company to profitability and steady growth of 40% year-over-year. 50%, 40%, who's counting? I mean, numbers and quotes like this, that makes it sound as if Rotem's competing with Marcus Braun. Huh. And also publicly traded. Now, rather ironically, Rotem also sits on the board of Tel Aviv-based company Fifth Dimension, a private company that claims to offer a, quote, comprehensive investigation platform for law enforcement and police agencies. Keep your enemies closer. Now, one of the other acquiring banks for Grey Mountain and tied to Wookiee was MaxPay. Sound familiar? It should. Run by Artem Timoshenko's, MaxPay is supposedly a registered bank in Malta, but unfortunately the MFSA doesn't seem to have a record of them holding a license. And Timoshenko, COO Alexander Mikhailenko, UK head Maxim Anatolovich Masalov, also run MaxPay Hong Kong. And you'll never believe what industries MaxPay claims to serve. Reading from their website, dating, gaming, and subscription and travel. Are these euphemisms the marketing department thought up for porn, binary options, and trafficking? MaxPay is a payment services provider majority owned by Max Polikov and is indeed documented to cater to so-called high-risk merchants. Doesn't this sound familiar? 
The online investigative group Snopes identified MaxPay appearing to process transactions for a prodigious number of scams. They claimed over 60% of referral traffic to MaxPay over an 11-month period studied came from online merchants engaged in subscription traps. And over 40% of the online merchants that communicated with MaxPay's domain were associated with fake merchants and predatory dating websites. Now, ultimately, this research would lead to an investigation by the BBC and Kiev Post that found Polyakov, well, now refashioned as a philanthropist and investor in space technology, that really he'd made his fortune from those dodgy dating sites. In fact, in December of 21, the U.S. government requested Polyakov sell his stake in the rocket company Firefly Aerospace due to national security concerns. And these then were the acquiring banks used by Grey Mountain and friends. Now, from evidence produced in the forms of an electronic diary made by Danielle Earle, that's the administrative manager of Grey Mountain, right, in Gorey, Grey Mountain carried on its operations for circa three years. So, from the point of its incorporation in Dublin uh, on May, four- May 20th, 2014, until about April 25th, 2017. And that date was... This last date was when they stopped taking any more money from victims. During the course of the trial, counsel for Mr. Powers made it clear that the one significant relief Powers was seeking was that he really wanted the court to pierce Grey Mountain's corporate veil, as he was seeking an order making all four directors and shadow directors of Grey Mountain personally liable for the fraud committed by it. This was on the basis that Grey Mountain had one purpose only— namely to deprive victim investors, and in particular Mr. Powers, of their savings for the benefit of the Cartoo brothers. Now, up until two weeks before the trial, the venerable and white-shoe law firm Matheson was acting for David Cartoo, Coates and Granger. Now, the firm had also previously acted for Jonathan Cartoo in the class action matter, and more on Matheson in a moment. But apparently, David stopped paying his legal team and, according to the Matheson lawyers, dropped out 14 days before the start of the trial. Talk about the wrong time to stop stop paying your counsel. (laughs) Former defense counsel Ross of Fanning quit after the earlier 2018 case, but poor Stephen Dowling, SC, who took on the cartoons for this matter, found himself left holding unpaid invoices. Understand, the court was advised that neither of the Cartoo brothers would be appearing. David wasn't attending because he had, quote, a legal issue in Dubai and couldn't leave. Ah, detention in the UAE. We're certainly not at the Monaco Grand Prix now. Jonathan didn't bother to show up either, probably seeking to avoid Ireland lest he get picked up and carted off under competing extradition treaties with Canada and the U.S., not only did the Cartoos not show up for the trial, via their lawyers, they failed to provide any, any evidence contradicting the evidence produced at the hearing that supported the allegations of fraud set out in Mr. Power's statement of claim. And that's the complaint, for those of you not up on your Irish court processes. It is also relevant to note that in their defenses, all four individuals all four of the defendants, Cartoos, Granger, Coates, simply denied Sirashan the claims Powers alleged, and they didn't bother to put forward a single positive defense or provide any explanation for the various claims made by Powers. Grey Mountain, the company, by the time this trial started in liquidation, was not involved in the hearing before the court. And to put the liquidation in context, Grey Mountain had a cash balance of approximately 600,000 euros, which wasn't going to quite cover the 35 plaintiffs' claims, which total over 4 million. Oh dear, are the cartoons going to have to sell one of the race cars? Quel dommage. Now, before we skip ahead to the punchline or the judge's ruling in the case, let's take a look at some of the other key players and how the greater fraud scheme worked. During Grey Mountain's operating period, Powers came across a business operating under the name Glenridge Capital, using a website, Glenridge Capital, which was offering a binary options trading platform. Now, it's important to note that Glenridge was not a legal entity. It was just a website address. And what's really creepy about the Cartoos company's name here 
with the stories from victims who reported visiting one of the websites related to one of those so-called investment opportunities, binary option scam site, only to suddenly receive a phone call at home or on their mobile from someone purporting to work for said entity. Mind you, the victims had not provided their phone numbers or sought a call back. Rather, it appears the cartoons were directly DPII scraping from site visits and connecting it to other data on prospective marks so as to identify their phone numbers and give it that personal touch. Ew. Oh, regulators, you may want to look into some serious GDPR violations here. I know, I know, the DPC favors a light touch. Can we find a nexus to France? Anywho, let's look at the cartoon's lackeys. Defendant Ryan Coates, son of Michelle Malloy, was a college student when he first became a director of Grey Mountain, and he claimed that he had absolutely no role in the company. He told the court that he was a director in name only, and he became a director at the suggestion of his mama. My mama told me. She, who was director of companies in the Wirecard Group, told Ryan he could become director in name only of Grey Mountain because he'd be paid 1,200 a month, euros, 1,200 euros a month in director's fees, and that would help him to cover his student expenses in Dublin. Oh, solid parenting by Ms. Malloy, instructing her kid to engage in fraud to make his way through uni as a business management student. Oh, for Christ's sake. I guess it beats having to take out student loans. Coates told the court that his mother had explained to him that a key part of the structure of Grey Mountain involved the acquiring banks dealing with investors, air quotes, who were outside the EU and that for it all to work, they needed Grey Mountain, an EU-based company, saying, that's why we have it in Ireland, instead of, say, Belize. His supposed naivete even extended to executing a power of attorney on behalf of Grey Mountain in favor, in favor of David Cartu, and never once asking why he was doing such a thing. And then there's Liam Granger. Now, he has a lengthier wire card rap sheet, being targeted to Marshallik and O'Sullivan in addition to Wookiee, the Cartus, Grey Mountain. Granger, in fact, has acted as a director for approximately 500 companies over a 20-year period. And at the relevant time, he was also working as a consultant and subcontractor for a company secretarial arm of an accountancy firm, Moore Stevens in Dublin, which just happened to be based at the exact same address where the registered office of Grey Mountain was. Another enabler. He was also paid for being a director of Grey Mountain, and the bank statements exhibited by Powerside shows that Granger received a similar monthly salary to that of Coates. He received about 1170 a month just for the use of his name. But he also had a greater involvement. He had his own company, Procorp Management Consultants Limited, which received 10,000 euros plus VAT for services he provided to Grey Mountain. And despite these services and his monthly check from Grey Mountain, in his witness statement, <laughs> Granger claimed, quote, I was neither privy to nor consulted in any manner about the company, Grey Mountain's affairs, and I had no knowledge of the matter, the subject of these proceedings, until I was served with them. Essentially, both Granger and Coates claimed they were directors for Grey Mountains in name only, and because of this, they wanted to weasel out of any liability, claiming that they shouldn't be held liable for the losses caused to Powers. After all, they knew nothing, nothing of the alleged fraud for the simple reason that they'd abrogated their duties as directors in favor of the shadow directors of Grey, Martin, Grey Mountain, the Cartoon Brothers. Now, Powers claimed in his suit the binary options are financial instruments and that Grey Mountain didn't have authorization to carry on trading in financial instruments under the European Communities Markets and Financial Instruments Regulation of 2007. And the court agreed. To the extent that any trading was actually ever carried on by Grey Mountain, or Glen Ridge as Powers knew it, it's clear that Grey Mountain didn't have the authorization to do this, to carry out any trading. Ooh, 
I forgot to mention how many companies were identified related to the Carr Two Brothers thanks to this lawsuit. Okay, pencils at the ready. Take note. Edgedale Finance. Bloombecks, which relates to No Win Gambia and Gibraltar. Big Options. Glenridge Capital. That's how Powers knew them. UK TVM, based in the UK. Blue Moon. All Out Marketing, Cherry Trade, Porter Finance, Memox Services Limited, Wise Group Limited, MaxPay, recognize that one, Tracy, PAI, Israel, Rumelia Capital, B Options. And these last three you'll recognize from the US CFTC enforcement action a couple of years ago, which I've talked about. Now, within the court documents was also evidence of the Cartoos' links to other binary option scam companies not run by them, but facilitated by them, including Binary Book. Banking for these entities was through Wirecard and, of course, payment processing via Wookie. And instead of Grey Mountain liaising directly with individual credit card companies such as Visa or MasterCard, it did, did so through its acquiring banks right? Wirecard, Transact Pro, Credorix, and MaxPay. And the requiring banks received funds from the credit card companies and then passed those back to Gray Mountain. Now, one of the entities I mentioned, Edgedale Finance, claimed to have a finance and compliance department, but its credit card verification form provided to victims for the purposes of obtaining their deposits, in other words, let's scam your money now, referred to the payer's trading account with Grey Mountain. As one of the cartoons themselves described, quote, we take the money. It's all completely generic. It's got nothing to do with the individual investment experience. We collect the money, deduct commissions. There's a rolling reserve in the acquiring bank, Wirecard. There's a rolling reserve with the merchant, and then we pay the money over to the merchant. Only what he didn't fully make clear is that they passed money on to known crooks. To give you a sense of the volume of the money that ran through these entities, UK TVM received approximately $233 million from the Cartoos binary option operations, of which the Cartoos retained $55 million for themselves and sent the balance to unknown third parties. Now, court documents also threw up that the cartoons not only misrepresented the so-called investment opportunities, but to all of the plaintiffs misrepresented the location, the qualifications, and the identities of the brokers or advisors with whom they interacted, Powers being no exception. Powers told of variously dealing with persons calling themselves Mark Schaefer, Brian Green, Fabio Morganelli, David Silva, and David Owen. But at least with a David Owen persona, Powers, unbeknownst to him at the time, was in fact dealing with David Cartu. Isn't that kind of tawdry? Mr. Jet Setter, look at me in the F1 car, was manning the phones and personally defrauding victims? What happened to all those willfully blind workers in the Cartu-owned boiler rooms? In addition to this lawsuit, in 2017, Ireland Central Bank's money laundering unit had opened an investigation into Grey Mountain, and thanks to a whistleblower from inside the Gory location, the connection between the various shell companies and the Cartoos began to surface, which is why David Cartoos scrambled to put Grey Mountain into liquidation. Only it was too late. I mean, he did manage to put it into liquidation, to bankruptcy. But the insolvency administrator wrote in his report that from the Grey Mountain Chargeback Procedure Manual, it was clear that Glenridge, Grey Mountain, Tracy PII, PII, all owned by David Cartu and were all treated as one enterprise. And that's because on page three of the manual, it provided that in relation to any Tracy PII brand, by which is clearly meant any brand owned by Cartu, including Glenridge, listed as one of such brand, Tracy PII should be asked what it wishes to do in relation to pre-arbitration for Credorix chargebacks for such brands. There was no such requirement for third-party brands. Additional evidence surfaced about Jonathan Cartu making significant decisions on behalf of the company. 
In one email from 2016 to an employee of Grey Mountain, Jonathan approved approved payments from the company totaling $406,000, well, $406,509.50 to be transferred to B-Options, a binary option business. And this is rather funny because it was noted in a separate legal opinion of an Irish law firm, McCartan and Burke, that... B Options was owned by Grey Mountain. And in the same email, Jonathan instructed Grey Mountain employee make transfers totaling €2,147,746. Let's just say over two mil from Grey Mountain to accounts such as Blue Moon and All Out Marketing. And the court was provided evidence that Blue Moon was a company also owned by Jonathan Cartu and that All Out Marketing, a company owned by David Cartu. As the court observed, the loss of these millions paid into Grey Mountain was, quote, caused by Grey Mountain paying the money to unknown entities abroad. Money was, quote, commingled, a critical step to laundering, as you all know. And then Grey Mountain paid the money it collected onto third parties. All told, investigators have identified at least 27 million the Cartoos moved out of Ireland and into their offshore accounts. An insolvency administrator provided evidence that money received from the victim investors would be shared between Grey Mountain, they took about 10% a cut, about cut of 10%, and the owner of the other third-party binary options brands or websites, 90%, which in the case of Glenridge, well, was David Cartu, so he got a hundred percent, or whoever owned that particular binary option brand, they, the Cartus, or others, would get at least ninety percent if they owned it outright. Well, a hundred percent, and in return for the ten percent cut of the money it processed, Gray Mountain provided an unauthorized money transmission business, passing on credit card payments to third-party binary option traders. And there really wasn't a lot of evidence that any actual trading had been conducted by any of the third parties, Cartoos or others. In fact, it looked as if most of it was just straight out pure scam, take the money, process it through, well, and deposit in your own personal account. Evidence showed that Grey, Mar- Mar- Grey Mountain provided a legitimate-looking front to numerous other binary option platforms for a fee, so those not owned by the Cartoos, with the funds raised from the commission ultimately being returned to the Cartoo brothers. Danielle Earle wrote an explanation in an email explaining how Grey Mountain works, saying, quote, All monies taken by merchants show on their bank and credit card accounts as Grey Mountain Management. The merchant's name doesn't appear anywhere. Remember that scheme? The same one that Marshalik was running at Wirecard for porn and gambling? The same one Akavan and Vegan were running for various scams and frauds? And remember, whilst the Cartoos took their cut for running these front companies, they were sending most of these proceeds offshore. Now, Credorics even fretted when they observed a drop-off in payments. They wrote to the Cartoos asking why there was a sudden huge drop in processing volumes for Grey Mountain from investors' credit cards. Car- Jonathan Cartoo replied and sent an email to all Tracy PII employees suggesting that UK TVM and Grey Mountain were Tracy PA's only customers at the time. And the Cartoos directed the Grey Mountain team to make calculated decisions whenever some punter who'd been ripped off complained. The industry standard for the maximum amount of chargeback for a merchant is typically 1-2%. to However, the chargeback fraud rate for Grey Mountain was 8.3%, 830% greater than the industry maximum. In some instances, it was decided by Grey Mountain that it was prudent for it regarding certain aggrieved victims of their scams to refund their money so as not to attract unnecessary attention to the company. So roughly, for every hundred that Grey Mountain managed to obtain from victims, some 24 was repaid because of fraud, non-receipt of services, goods, a chargeback. But the rest of the defrauded got nothing back. They were keeping 75 out of 100. That's not bad hay. And that investigation by the Irish Central Bank? Well, this is particularly a rich little piece of the story.
So the bank was rightfully concerned that Grey Mountain was operating as an unlicensed MSB. So in early 2016, it sent the company a letter pointing out that it had not authorized or licensed Grey Mountain to function as an MSB or payment processor. And the Cartoos, in response, turned to their law firm, Matheson, and had them write a letter lying on its behalf to, as the court called it, throw the central bank off the scent and avoid being closed down as an unauthorized MSB and to avoid being closed down as a firm misrepresenting that it was trading in binary options, end quote. Judge Dewey then observed that, gosh, with hindsight, Grey Mountain would have been shot down by the central bank if the reply from Matheson had been honestly answered, and in particular by stating the truth. The Grey Mountain was in fact providing payment methods through third-party credit cards acknowledged that Grey Mountain and Glen Ridge operated as one enterprise, whereby investors were being induced to pay money to Grey Mountain Glen Ridge for so-called binary option trading. And in fact, in a second letter from Matheson to the central bank, the claim was that Grey Mountain, quote, has amended the text on the website, their website, to reflect the fact that they accept payment for services provided through various methods uh, legal weaseling, when in fact it continued to act as a payment processor for Glenridge and the other binary option trading platforms. It is galling to note that in relation to the fourth and crucial point raised by the central bank in its letter to Grey Mountain regarding the fact that transactions and bank statements reflected Grey Mountain as the beneficiary, Matheson provided no explanation or answer to that question. As Judge Tui said, if this had been truthfully explained, this would have likely led to the closure of Grey Mountain, since it would have also led to the admission that Grey Mountain was operating as an unauthorized payment processor for third parties. But it gets worse. The court discussed having seen in the evidence conflicting letters from two different firms of solicitors, Matheson and a second one, McCartan and Burks. The web of lies being told by and on behalf of Grey Mountain was highlighted when one considers that a letter from Matheson engaged by Grey Mountain in February 2016 stated, no financial services are provided by Grey Mountain, wherein a completely different legal opinion from another firm of solicitors, McCartan and Burke, who had been engaged by Grey Mountain some months prior That's because McCartan and Burke's opinion, dated 25th of June 2015, stated that Grey Mountain was in fact a binary options broker. McCartan and Burke said they'd been retained by Grey Mountain to express an opinion about whether Grey Mountain's primary activity as a binary options broker under the name B-Options, using the same website, bOptions.com, requires a financial services license or gambling license under the laws of Ireland. Matheson knew Grey Mountain and Glenridge were one enterprise run by the Cartoos, as when Matheson issued a bill dated 6th of February 2017 for its legal services to Grey Mountain. It didn't issue the bill to Grey Mountain. That would have led to Grey Mountain having to pay VAT as it was resident in Ireland. Instead, Matheson sent the bill, advice given regarding letters they had written on behalf of Grey Mountain to investors denying that they had been defrauded. Yeah, that's right. Matheson actually wrote letters to some of these plaintiffs before they were plaintiffs, saying, no, 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 you weren't defrauded. Well, they issued the bill not in the name of Grey Mountain, No, Matheson sent the bill in the name of David Cartu. And since Cartu wasn't resident in Ireland, he wasn't subject to VAT, amounting to tax evasion, or a loss to the revenue of VAT 3,717 on a 16,000-plus euro bill from Matheson. Well, after all of this is noted by the court, the court then caught itself, realizing they'd rather made Matheson sound like crooked enablers 
saying, ooh, ooh, it's not being suggested that either the central bank or Matheson were aware of the fraud or have any moral or legal responsibility for the losses suffered by Mr. Powers. It does, however, highlight the need for regulatory authorities to be extra vigilant to the use by fraudsters of reputable law firms and counsel in the vigorous defense of these proceedings, which continued up to two weeks prior to the trial, to add a veneer of legitimacy to unlawful activities with the apparent intention of putting off the fateful day when their fraudulent operations will be shut down. Now, the court called the Cartoos businesses under the Grey Mountain banner, quote, a massive, part of a massive international fraud. Because it identified binary option merchants served by Grey Mountain in the Marshall Islands, Dominica, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Georgia, the BVI, Vanuatu, the Seychelles, and Belize. Really, no moral or legal responsibility? Matheson must have missed the EU's third anti-money laundering directive at that time and Fathers' report on money laundering typologies dating back to 2000 which expanded on the role of gatekeeper professionals, including lawyers, facilitating money laundering. Funny thing, even as far back as 2010, Ireland had the Criminal Justice Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Act, and the Law Society of Ireland had issued guidance to solicitors on how they were intended to comply with the Act with respect to client due diligence. As the guidance noted, the legislation requires designated bodies, law firms, to apply enhanced CD measures in circumstances where their own assessment of risk concludes that clients present a higher risk of money laundering or threat financing. And it instructs that solicitors should undertake enhanced measures required under the Act, defining CDD as consisting of primarily four obligations. One... Identify the client and verify the client's identity on the basis of documents, data, or information obtained from independent and reliable sources. Identify the beneficial owner and take risk-based and adequate measures to verify the identity so that the law firm is satisfied that it knows who the beneficial owner is. Taking risk-based and adequate measures to understand the ownership and control structure of the client. Obtaining information on the purpose and intended nature of the business relationship. And conduct ongoing monitoring of the business relationship, including scrutiny of transactions undertaken throughout the course of that relationship to ensure that the transactions being conducted are consistent with the firm's knowledge of the client, the business, and risk profile, including, where necessary, the source of funds. In the words of the guidance, quote, every solicitor should be acutely aware of the criminal offenses created by the 2010 Act and how he or she might unwittingly become involved in the offenses governed by that Act. Yeah, thank goodness in the 2016 Criminal Justice Money Laundering Terrorist Financing Act, uh, that all of this was in 2016, that the 2018 Act hadn't been promulgated as yet, or Matheson might be facing even more questions from a regulator. Matheson must have looked at to the words of the immortal Gordon Shumway for its guidance instead. Shumway, ignorance is no excuse, interlocutor. Ignorance is your excuse all the time. Shumway, I don't know what you're talking about. If Grey Mountain had been shut down back in 2016 when the bank was asking questions, the 35 plaintiffs might not have suffered the losses they did. So Matheson was lazy and didn't conduct due diligence on their client as required. You know, don't bother to dig too deep into your client's real business and then claim it's not your fault when you aid and abet them in their crimes. Ultimately, in replies to the interrogatories, late in 22, uh, early in 22, David Cartu confirmed to the court that he was indeed the beneficial owner of the entire shareholding of Grey Mountain. Additional evidence was supplied that, you know, he was also the ultimate owner of the website Glenridge Capital. Business records identified between 2015 and 2017 showed the total value of payments made to Grey, Grey Mountain 
amounted from credit cards amounted to a hundred and three million dollars. A hundred and three eight hundred thousand six hundred and fifty-five euros to be exact. And the liquidator of Grey Mountain calculated the total value of credit card payments to Grey Mountain amounted to 186 million. Now, in an agreement between Grey Mountain and Wirecard Bank, David was listed as the proprietor, Jonathan was listed as the general contact, and Jonathan's contact information was listed as Jonathan at tracypai.com. And Adam Graves, who was shown as the 100% shareholder of Grey Mountain on the date of incorporation, wrote in a declaration of trust that he held those shares for and on behalf of David Cartu, the beneficial owner. And finally, in liquidation proceedings, David swore he was the sole beneficial owner. And emails between Granger and the Cartus produced showed that Granger stated he signed payment processing agreements with all the acquiring banks, Wirecard, MaxPay, Credorx, and was aware that the Cartus were engaging in fraud using Grey Mountain as a front and that Danielle Earle was helping to operate the company for the Cartoos as a front for third-party merchants. Now, there was no evidence that he discharged his duty as a director to investigate the issue further. Instead, he continued to facilitate the business of the company by signing payment processing agreements and transferring funds. In fact, at one point, he transferred to binary options trader Memic Service Limited 596,000 euros with Granger signing off and producing evidence that showed that the ultimate owner of Memex was none other than David Cartu. Both he and Coates completely abrogated their responsibilities as directors, amounting to dereliction of duty of a director. And none of the four Cartus, Granger, Coates, produced any evidence to contradict the extensive allegations that were produced by Mr. Powers. Now, counsel for Powers, had urged the court to find the four directors, shadow directors, personally liable for the fraud, but admitted that they weren't able to identify any cases in the Irish courts in which the corporate veil had been pierced in this type of case. In fact, the closest the Irish court had come to piercing a corporate veil in sim- circumstances somewhat similar were found in orbit dicta, these are incidental comments judges make, in a number of high court cases. But Judge Dewey quoted one case in particular, the stay at McKerney Company Limited v. Dublin County Council from 1985, saying, the arm which lifts the corporate veil must always be that of justice. And then Judge Tomey on the balance said, on the balance of probabilities, this court concludes that they siphoned off considerable sums of money from Grey Mountain which has left the liquidator with insufficient funds to repay the millions of dollars in credit card payments made to Grey Mountain by unsuspecting individuals who, quote, invested in binary options. And, of course, the company can't meet its obligations, and in particular to Mr. Powers. And so, whilst the foregoing law deals with directors rather than shadow directors, this court sees no reason in principle to distinguish between shadow directors and the directors when applying these principles to the question of whether the corporate veil should be pierced. And while it doesn't believe, the court that is, that it should lift the corporate veil lightly, in view of the importance of this principle in company law, it seems to this court that if it would fail to do so in the circumstances of this case, it would be an affront to justice. It would also send out a message that individuals, whether resident in Ireland or abroad, whether directors or shadow directors, can use an Irish company to carry out whole-scale and massive international fraud, and then evade personal liability on the basis that it was the company and not them that, as a matter of law, carried out the fraud. It cannot be correct in this court's view, and it cannot amount to justice in the Irish courts. Accordingly, this court finds that David Cartu and Jonathan Cartu are personally liable to Mr. Powers for the loss of $124,027, which he suffered as a result of the fraud, misrepresentation, and siphoning off of funds, which the company that they controlled, managed, and undertook. Now, they also, the court also found Coates and Granger responsible. 
and it means that the other 34 plaintiffs are going to have a much easier time suing the cartoons for their losses. Judge Tui went on to say that it is clear from the foregoing Irish cases in this jurisdiction, there are exceptions to the principle that directors are not liable for the acts or omissions of a company. It seems to this court, if this case, where the only purpose of the company was to act as an instrument of a massive international fraud, is not one such exceptional case in which the corporate veil should be pierced, then it is hard to think of a more extreme case in which piercing the corporate veil could be justified. The judge went on to talk about the duties of a company and, and the director, or the duties of a director to a company, talking about the nature of the duties and acquainting themselves with the affairs generally of the company concerned and exercising appropriate supervision and oversight at the board level and the discharge of whatever tasks or functions being properly and appropriately delegated and raising the issue of abdication of responsibility and the delegation of responsibility. Oof. Harding, O'Sullivan, Trotman, Nokelman, Bellinghouse, et al. This ruling ought to make you very, very nervous. Of course, there's hope of an actual recovery to compensate victims. We have to hope Marshallik and O'Sullivan and company were smart enough to reconvert their cryptocurrencies back to RMT, or they have likely lost significant amounts of late. The Cartoos have plenty of assets for these plaintiffs to go after. David, sometimes called a Canadian influencer, really influencing his siblings into financial crime? Well, the brothers have frequently posted to social media of their expensive lifestyle. Riding in a Russian MiG, jet skiing down the Danube, schmoozing with A-list actors, homes in Rome, Abu Dhabi, Miami. To evidence that money doesn't buy taste, they even harbor fiber-trim the toilet seat in one of their private jets. Quite a rise for the kids of a middle-class car dealer in Ontario, Canada. They made money from involvement in Playtech, the Estonia-based gambling software company founded by Teddy Sagi. One of the cartoons became CEO of Rome Partners, an online gambling site registered in Panama. David owns race cars. His brother Josh is a famous car collector and president of the Budapest Ferrari Club. Can't make this shite up. Who owns at least 12 Ferraris and Rolls-Royce Phantom, they founded collectively Sandbox Media, the company that fronts so many of the entities I mentioned today. They have houses everywhere. There's plenty of dosh to be required, recovered from the Cartoon clan. Maybe that's why baby bro Joshi has lately taken to telling anyone who will listen that he's not involved in David and Jonathan's dirty business. Of course, one of them needs to appear clean as they've moved all of the sports cars, luxury properties, racing team into Josh's name in an attempt to shield their proceeds of crime from asset forfeiture. But the car twos were not the only ones who benefit from payment processing and bank accounts via wirecard entities. Nor were they the only ones to attempt to conceal themselves behind layers of shellcos. Take, for instance, Henry O'Sullivan. Recall Wookiee tied directly to Grey Mountain? It also leads to Alan White and Marshallic. White leads to Herview Limited Ireland, subsidiary of Wirecard former name Planet Merlot, whose investors included several Swiss entities, but were run, but were, which were run by Mark Nathan and Liam Granger. Oh yes, Granger again. O'Sullivan with Marshallic, Nokelman, and Granger, he of the lawsuit, were part of DPO Group Fintech, Follow the convoluted paths of O'Sullivan's many dozens of shell companies, including those held in his wife's name and that of their incorporation lawyer agent, and eventually companies associated with O'Sullivan, such as Vibedeck, leads to BC Technologies, which leads to Rupac Partners. And from Rupac, we get to Istmenya in International SA and Azuro in Vernishta. And these last two companies take us to Panama, where the Panamanian Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office has opened an investigation. Why? Because the companies were part of Odebrecht's offshore network and were used to pass along bribes to public officials and evade Peruvian tax authorities. Following each shell and prying them open to expose the ultimate beneficial owners of these companies and tracing the proceeds that have flowed through them isn't for purient purpose. As this decision in Powell demonstra Powers demonstrates, 
it is a path to obtaining more convictions and recovering the proceeds of crime. And that's it for today's, sorry, lengthy episode. Next episode, we have not spent nearly enough time on the executive alum of Wirecard and all these strikingly similar payment processing companies, including cryptocurrencies, they have set up. I'm talking about those lovable scamps, Nokelman and Troutman. He got a name drop during day six of the trial. Did you notice, Troutman? Thorsten Holton, Ralph Buckholtz. Oh, yes, folks, these guys haven't ceased being industrious. So many companies for us to chat about. The click-to-pays, the payritos, so much more. Former vice president, digital sales at Wirecard Bank's launch of Payoro Connect. Oh, so many goodies. Nor have I yet covered the nexus to the nexo criminal takedowns and civil actions out of Bulgaria, the US, and the Caymans to Wirecard and the Binary Options crew. And then there's news about TUI, Alexander Vucek's old company. Oh, it's like old home week. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon. You've been listening to Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, the Wirecard podcast. I would be remiss if I didn't thank you, listeners. Keep the messages coming. If you happen to be jogging around, in, uh, say, the park in Vienna or somewhere in Switzerland listening to this, I haven't forgotten you. And thank you, Compliance Podcast Network and Tom Fox. I'll see you back here next episode. Lots of really good stuff ahead. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join us again for our next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.